Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers podcast. This message from one of our leaders here at Gatekeepers, Peter Keller, is on living out biblical family. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. So I'm, I'm preaching on we are family as gatekeepers because I actually believe that's part of who we are. And so my goal today is to actually take whatever you came in here thinking family is and, and put the truth of the gospel uh, or apply the truth of the gospel to your life and to our life here at Gatekeepers. I think um, the world tells us a lot about what family is supposed to look like. And the enemy has come in and, and infiltrated the church trying to get us to see family as something that's terrible. But I just want to say it's not. And I, I, I want to back that up here, and I want to show us the history of family, where it comes from, and how we can actually live as a family, and why we should live as, as a family. So I'm just going to pray us in, and uh, we'll get started. Jesus, I thank you so much for this body, for this people that I get a chance to call family, my spiritual family. Lord, I ask that as I, I bring this message that I've prepared, that you would come and you would fill my words Lord, when I speak, very little can change, but when you speak, hearts and minds change. And so I invite you to come tonight and inform us, Lord, what is your heart for us here at Gatekeepers when it comes to family? Lord, I ask that you would empower us to actually start pursuing family at any cost, God, because it's going to bring us closer to you. So Lord, we love you and we worship you in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Awesome. So... In the beginning, there was God. Guess what? God was the first family. The Trinity is three people. We got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So right there, you have titles, fam- familiar, familial titles. You have a Father, plain and simply, a Son, and you have a Holy Spirit. And Spirit is known as the helper. Women in the Bible in Genesis uh, two, I think, or Genesis one are called the helper as well. So you have even that, that motherly bond inside of the Trinity. And so David says in Psalm 90 verse two, that from everlasting to everlasting, God has been and will be. That means that the fellowship of the Trinity, the fellowship of the Godhead has been in existence since before time began and will be in existence at the end of time, period. So in that time, I just want to pose the idea that God had, a, had the chance to get to know all of the different parts of God deeply and intimately. The Father knew the Son, the Son knew the Holy Spirit all, all around, and it created this deep bond. God, in, in John uh, 1, sorry, John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made. So even right there, we see John saying, hey, the Trinity has deeply known each other. And the Trinity is family. Powerful stuff. 
God knows God like no other. The only person that knows the thoughts of God is the spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10. So God has been in family forever and he is the archetypal family that we actually get to look at. When we look at the current situation in the world, we're looking at family through the lens of the fall. We're going to get there though. So what is the second family that we get to see in the Bible? That my friends is Adam and Eve. Genesis one on day six of creation story, God is creating all of the plants, all of the animals on earth. And he gets done with that. And he says, this is really, or this is good. But God was looking for more than just animals and more than just mountains and more than just plants to fellowship with. God wanted to extend his family. And so he created us. He created Adam. He created Eve. He said, I want to extend my family. I want to have more. I love this fellowship that I have with myself, but I want more. I want to extend it. I want people to do life with, and I want them to experience me because I am worthy of being experienced. And people that I'm creating, I want to also give myself to them. So God creates man in his image. He tells them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That's the first command of God. And I think a lot of times we look at that and we say, well, that's just, you know, Moses saying stuff because we, you know, somehow people had to be made. But no, God, in saying that, he expresses his desire to have a family. You can't have a family if there's just one person. God wanted... (laughs) I, I do that stuff all the time to whoever's speaking, so I love it. Hallelujah. Yeah, you can't have a family with one person. So God created... Eve. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. Ooh, let's sit on that for a second. It's not good for man to be alone. So that's why God created family. Mm. So God said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. So I'm going to give him a help, a helper. The Trinity had been in existence for eternity and is God. God creates man in his image from the earth for the purpose of being intimate with God. And in creating woman, he desires for Adam to enter into a similar unity that the Godhead has. When man and woman join together in marriage, it says that two flesh become one. Just as the Trinity is three parts in one, we get to actually experience Unity, a similar unity that the Trinity has inside of a relationship. Jesus. They become one flesh. God made human family from man for man unto expressing and experiencing the heavenly reality of fellowship. So the Trinity exemplifies the closeness and unity that God desired us to have. He created a companion for us. And I just want to sort of end the Adam and Eve arc by saying that God also made man to live in intimacy outside of fear and shame. It says that they were naked and without shame. And so the purpose or pre-fall, we could actually live 
in relation with one another without bearing the weight of, of, of shame. We could be fully vulnerable, fully known. And that's actually how God reacts with himself. He knows himself. He says, people, this is how you were created. And I'm willing to let you know me. And I, but I also want you to know your neighbor. But that brings us to the fall. So we have the creation of the family. And then we get to see in Genesis, the loss of a family through the divorce of man from God through the fall. Adam and Eve, they take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that moment, man who is walking with God could no longer be in the presence of God because they had separated themselves from God. So we see all of a sudden, in really the first story post-creation, man says, I'm not willing to do family anymore. I don't want to do family anymore. I want to trust on my own knowledge, my own understanding in order so that I, I can be more wise. I can, I can do things on my own. It feels better. I, I don't have to trust God. So we see Adam and Eve, they disobey God. How does God respond? He doesn't say, hey, forget you guys. He actually, in a couple verses past where uh, Adam and Eve take the fruit, he says, all right, I'm going to have a contingency plan. I'm going to create from your lineage, from, from your seed, there's going to be a, re a redeemer. There's going to be a man who goes against the serpent and crushes the head of the serpent and the serpent's going to bite him. But he gives the promise of redemption of man, the redemption of family, bringing the family back together. So after that happens, the second story that's in the Bible, when it comes right after the fall, we have Cain and Abel. It's more family guys. And what, what do we see in that family? Immediately, Cain murders his brother Abel because he compares himself to his brother. So the first two stories in the Bible, post-creation of the world, talks about family, and it actually talks about the brokenness of family. Really painful. Um, Genesis 4 verse 9 says, when the Lord was talking to Cain, he asked, where is your brother Abel? Abel uh, Cain said, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And I know Casey preached on this, but actually our identity pre-fall was to be our brother's keepers. It was to live serving, loving, fighting for each other. And then the effects of sin come in and what does it turn into? A perversion of the intent of God. Does that make sense? I'm trying not to go too fast, but I am on a time limit, guys. So, all right. After... Cain and Abel, we see more stories. We see the earth populating just to, to immense populations. And instead of getting more close to God, instead of coming, becoming more holy, man actually begins walking away from God. They say, no, we don't want anything to do with the family. We want to be more separated from God. And so what do they do? They, they begin sinning. They, they begin creating things and, you know, just, just going off. And God says, man, I am exceedingly sorrowful that I created man and he's about to wipe out man. But then Noah finds favor in the sight of God. God says, hey, man, I'm going to restart this family thing. 
through your lineage. So Noah and his family, they get on the ark. Right after they get off the ark, what happens? Noah's family, his son, says, hey, I'm going to dishonor my dad. And his son commits sin. So once again, even after the restart, the great restart that God had planned, sin is still in the world. It's not perfect. We get to Abraham and God says, well, this thing isn't working. I have to choose and I have to create a covenant with you so that you will become my family. So he takes this no-name guy named Abraham and, and says, I choose you to be the father of a great nation. I choose you to have a family that is created through your bloodline that I can call my people, God's people, the chosen people. So when God says, these are my people, he actually says that, I, I don't have the reference here, but when God says my people, I like to think of that as, have y'all seen like Grey's Anatomy where uh, one of the doctors, she's like, that's my person. I, I like to think of that as God saying to us, hey, I want Molly. She's my person. I want to have a, a people. I want to have every single person at Gatekeepers. I want to have a group of people that I can call my own and that I can actually relate to and can relate to me and can deeply know me and I can deeply know. So he creates the promise in the, uh, of Abraham. But we fast forward through time. And what do we see in the children of Israel? We, we see disobedience. We see sin. It's still present. God still wants his family, but there's just so much sin in the world that they keep making mistakes. And that's one of the things I love about the book of Genesis and about the Old Testament. A lot of people, they look at it as God just being a grumpy old guy, but it's actually this story of God trying to get his family back. And sometimes he has to have a little bit of tough love to get them back on track. We see Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Jesse and David, David and Absalom. Uh, you guys, we talked about Jacob and Esau and Joseph, but Jesse and David, Jesse, uh, David's King David's father, just completely overlooked him at the anointing ceremony and said, no, there's no way my son could be king. God could never use this kid. Then David get, becomes king years later and his son tries to overthrow him. There's just so much broken family throughout the history of the Bible. And we, 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 overlook it so often, but that doesn't change God's plan for the family. The very last verse in the Old Testament is Malachi 4 verse 6, and it says, God's going to send the spirit of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. I just find that to be the epitome of God's heart throughout the entire Old Testament. He just wants his family to come home. And I don't think it's coincidence that that's the very last verse before we get to Matthew, which is the good news of the Redeemer. So we had the creation of a family. We had the fall of a family. Then we had the redemption of the family through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, for Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. So Adam was the man who sinned. Jesus, so Adam was born of earth. Jesus was born from heaven. At, even as Adam was the man who allowed sin to come into the world, Paul says Jesus, the second Adam, is the man who came and God sent to redeem the world. And so we see Adam was the one who, hey, 
God's like, this is the game plan. We're going to do this. Adam sins. And he's like, all right, second game plan. We got Jesus and it's powerful. So he not only redeemed his original people, but he also redeemed us who were not part of the chosen people. Jews and Gentiles alike. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Of the Gentiles, he says that we are adopted. We're not forsaken anymore. There was no way for us to know God because we weren't the chosen people. But God said, I want a bigger family than just the people that I had initially um, chosen. I want to adopt a bunch of people into the family. So if you're not Jewish in here, there's hope for us guys, because guess what? I'm not a Jew. I bet most of us in here are not, but the Lord is so good that he said, I want a bigger family and I'm willing to take these. I like to think of myself almost like a a mutt or a stray dog. And he's like, I'm going to take that stray in. I'm going to love the crap out of that stray. And it's going to become like a family member to me. Hallelujah. He doesn't just say it about people in one country or the other, but he's, uh, the, the song that is sung in Revelation 5, 9 says, Jesus, you're worthy because you were slain. You purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So he wants, every, he wants the, end of, the ends of the earth to come and be a part of the spiritual family. He's not willing to just have one people group. So he redeemed us to God. That is our redeemer. That was God's contingency plan. And he made good on his word. So we have the creation of man. We have the fall of man. We have the redemption of man. Now we're going to get into the blessing of being in a family. What is spiritual family? Well, simply put, my definition is someone who has put their faith in Jesus and is actively pursuing the Lord. Jesus, however, makes a little bit more clear. In Matthew 12, 46, um, he's basically a bunch of disciples of Jesus. They come up to Jesus and they're saying, hey man, your mom and your brothers are outside. They're looking to meet with you. And they really want, they, they need you for something. And Jesus just looks, he's busy. And he, he looks at those disciples that are approaching him and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he looks at his other disciples that are following the will of God. And he says, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Spiritual family should be a reflection of the fellowship and unity that the Godhead has exhibited amongst a community of believers. So if it's supposed to be exhibited amongst a community of believers, how do we actually live that way? What does that look like? And I'm not actually going to give you the answer because I think the Bible makes it abundantly clear throughout the New Testament, how we're actually called to treat one another Love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. We're supposed to emanate the fruits of the spirit. We're called to elevate each other above ourselves. There's, there's a, a hundred different things that Jesus says about that. And I can't actually get into the, the, the meat of that because I've got another 47 minutes left. Okay. Or 37 minutes, however long it is. 
Um, but I, I want to challenge you. If you don't know how you're supposed to treat a brother or a sister or a mother or a father outside of what you've seen in the physical, I want to challenge you to look in the word. Go see what, the, what Jesus says about it. Go see what Paul says about it because it's there. You just have to look. And don't just look and then say, oh, that's cool. Look and actually go apply that to your life. Don't just read the word, but be a doer of the word. Amen. But why do we need Christian family? That's the question I'm going to answer. And what are the blessings of being in a spiritual family? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a martyr uh, in Nazi Germany, World War II. And in one of his books, he, he writes a bunch of books when he's in prison. And one of the books that he writes is a book called Life Together. And it's about the fellowship of, of the saints. It's an excellent book. I would highly recommend reading it. Um, I actually read it, I think a year or two ago. And as the Lord had been leading me in my own personal life, I started reading this book and I was like, oh, that's giving me so much language on why family is important. But Dietrich goes and he talks about Christian community, Christian family. He says, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means first that a Christian needs others for the sake of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a believer, a Christian, can only approach other believers through Jesus Christ. It means, third, that from eternity we have been chosen in Jesus Christ, accepted in time, and united for eternity. So he has three different statements there. First, we need others for the sake of Christ. What does that mean? It means that I, in and of myself, cannot pursue God. I need a, a Christian family who can come and pick me up when I'm down. It's not good for a man to be alone. So why, why do I have the luxury of saying, no, I'm going to do this thing on my own? I don't. I'm not an exception. I'm weak. I have my own issues. And so when Jesus says, come and eat my daily bread, and I'm laying in bed depressed and I don't have the energy to eat my daily bread, I have to rely on my brother to actually come and say, Peter, that's not the truth. Peter, you're called to more. Stand up. I can't do it on my own. And that's a reality I've had to come grasp. It's not an easy reality to have. It sometimes feels like it's easier to do it alone, guys. It really does. Because guess what? There's a lot of crap that happens inside of the, the, both the spiritual family and your natural family. But the Lord says, it's not good for you to be alone. Just chew on that. That's, that's the Bible right there. That's truth. I'm not just making this stuff up. The second prong is, uh, or the second thing that he talks about is that we come to others only through Jesus Christ. When man fell, sin entered into the world, and there was a division. All of a sudden, my heart, the heart of man, became dark. I, we became separated from God, but not just from God, but separated from man. All of a sudden, I have nothing in common with my brother, with my sister, outside of the own dark deceit 
that exists inside of my heart. But as soon as we walk into a room and we, we, we start, sorry, once we w- start walking with God, all of a sudden, me who has nothing in common with my brother, John, all of a sudden I have something in common with him. He knows Jesus and I know Jesus. And so I don't get to come to John just saying, hey man, I really like ceviche. Like that's, that's, what's, that's what's uniting us. I don't get to do that. Instead, I get to come to my brother John because the love of Jesus is radiating, radiating from him. I get to come to Wesley, not because I think he's cool and he's wearing a camo shirt and probably likes hunting or something, but because I know that he is a brother in Christ. I don't get to walk into a church service and say, man, there's a lot of people that are just different and I can't relate at all because I have something in common with every single one of you that is in this room right now. Come on, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Only in him are we one. Only through him are we bound together. Jesus. The third thing that Dietrich said is from eternity, we've been chosen in Jesus Christ, accepted in time and united for eternity. He's chosen us from before the earth was created. He dwelt among us and therefore will continue to be with us, uniting us as family forever. So not only do I get to do life with you right now as a believer, but I also get to do life with you, with you, Brooke. I get to do life with you for eternity. And that's something that's going to unite us all. I'm going to be way more acquainted with most of you than I probably will want to be when all things are said and done, but I'm also going to know you and you're going to know me. And so it's going to be awesome. Like my desire right now, I am fallen. I'm not perfect. And so honestly, getting to know all of you in this room is going to be really difficult for me, but I'm going to have 10,000 years to take you guys out for coffee and, you know, let's go to steakhouses. Let's eat some raw meat for Jesus. I'm just, that's, that's a Jamie thing. I love it. Um, so we get to be together for eternity. So God gives us the opportunity to actually get to know each other right now. And that's another reason we get to come and experience family. So that is why we do family, because it's something that God has called us to do. It's a way that we can relate with God. It's a way we can become closer with God. We have accountability. We have all all these different things that are a result of us saying yes to family. And I'm going to get into that right now. So what are the perks of spiritual family? If you're taking notes, I did the thing that Casey wanted me to do. And I gave, I, I, I made five P's for us to, to think about. Spiritual family promotes maturity. So that's the first P. What does that mean? It means that even as in an earthly relationship, there's a mother and a father who are maturing together. There is a son who the parents are raising. We have that same relationship inside of a spiritual family. We see that in the Bible uh, through the relationship of Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy, which if you've ever heard Dustin Pennington preach, he loves talking about this. But we see Paul is like a father figure because he's an apostle. 
in the early church. Timothy is a young man and Paul takes Timothy under his arm and says, hey man, you can do this thing. Let's grow up, let's mature you. Don't, don't be timid because you're young, but let the Holy Spirit lead you and guide you. And so he's like a father figure to Timothy. Paul also has this relationship with this guy named Barnabas, who is like a, a fellow, he's just a really good friend of Paul. And they go off and they do missions trips and they do, uh, I don't know, they eat lunch and they, they live life together. And Barnabas is always just sort of pushing, you know, he's like, hey, I'm running the race. Paul, come on, let's go. Running, doing life together. And so in life, inside of a spiritual family, I just want to encourage you. Everyone's called to have a Paul in their life. They're called to have a spiritual father. Everyone's called to have a Barnabas. I think a lot of us in this room have Barnabases. Um, and I think at, at a point, all of us are called to have Timothys in our life, spiritual children. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, you have to be super mature. Guess what? When my mom and dad were raising me, they weren't super mature. They figured it out as they went, didn't they, Rach? That's my sister, Rachel, over there. Um, but you know what? They figured it out and we survived. And so as a spiritual family, living life inside of that family unit that God designed, I think that we're all going to get by and we'll be okay, even in some of the mess. The second P is that living inside of a Christian community, a Christian family, we get provoked to godliness. Whew. So, Proverbs 27 says, as iron sharpens iron, so a brother, one person sharpens another. What's that look like? It means that when I am spiritually dry, I get to come, in, come say hi to Vicki D and her fire rubs off on me and I catch on fire. It means when I'm spiritually dull, I'm a piece of metal. I get to rub off on someone else and they will sharpen me. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Yeah, it's the proximity principle. The people that you hang out with are going to rub off on you. And so, like we had talked about earlier, we only come to others through Jesus and for the sake of Jesus. And so if we approach each other of that mindset where we're, we're going to rub off on each other and become more like Jesus together. Hallelujah. The third P is spiritual family provides a safeguard from the snare of the enemy. First Peter 5, 8 says, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So guess what? We are all at peril, at risk of having the enemy come out and devour us. It says it right there in first Peter, but that's not what the Lord wants for us. So we get to resist him. We get to run away from the roaring lion that is looking for us. Um, I like to think of this in terms of National Geographic, okay? Who here has seen National Geographic at some point, Discovery Channel, something like that? You've got this herd of zebras that are just sitting there in a plane grazing, and all of a sudden this lion comes out and starts hunting them. And, you know, it's real quiet at first, but all of a sudden when he pounces, the herd scatters in every direction, and the lion gets confused. But at the end 
of the episode or whatever you call it at the end of the little scene, almost every time I feel like you see the lion got a zebra. So I'm this spiritual zebra, this big, I've got some sort of meat on me that that the enemy really likes. And I have to stay in the middle of the herd because the zebra that gets devoured, it's not the one that's in the middle of the herd. It's the straggler. Oh, so let me ask you this. What makes me the exception? I'm not the exception. You're not the exception. If you want to be, or if you don't want to fall to the snare of the enemy, stay in the middle of the herd, guys. So it provides a safeguard from the snare of the enemy. Proverbs 24, 6 says, Surely you need guidance to wage war, and victory is won through many advisors. So have those advisors around you so that you can actually win the war against that lion that's after you. The fourth P is that spiritual family protects from falling away. Casey loves preaching from Hebrews, and so I've been pulling a lot from Hebrews tonight, but... Um, Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, that's talking about the day of the Lord. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. And so that's actually specifically talking about the great falling away that's that's going to happen at the end of the age. There's going to be a fence that rises up in people's hearts. They're going to, at some point, continue sinning so much that the price that Jesus paid isn't actually going to have any effect in their life. That's a whole message in and of itself. I'm not the guy to be preaching on the great falling away. But I just find it really interesting that that verse directly uh, follows, let us not consider how we may spur on one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So if we give up meeting together, I just want to pose the idea that we might be more prone to actually falling away. Like I was saying earlier, if I'm living life inside of a community and I fall my brother, my sister, my father, my mother, they're going to pick me up. Let me f- flip the page. Ooh, actually, I've got one more verse. Ecclesiastes 4. Who loves Ecclesiastes in here? So good. 4 verse 9 says, Two are better than one because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The fifth P that we got tonight is spiritual family produces fruit. John 15, we've all heard it. Hopefully we've all heard it before. If not, there's no shame. John says, well, it's Jesus who's saying this, but John records it. Jesus says, I am the vine. You, my people, are the branches. Those who remain in me produce much fruit. Those who are not in me will not produce fruit. It's impossible for them to produce fruit. I was just thinking about this and I was sort of just letting the, the word marinate in my heart. And I was thinking about actually what vines and branches, what, what it looks like in the natural And on a vine, most vines don't just have one branch that are, you know, or one branch here, one branch way over here, one branch way over here. That's not a a fruitful 
vine. Jesus is the most fruitful vine out there. His branches are all close together. We're called to be closely grouped together. And when the grapevine has branches that are close together, it's actually going to produce more fruit. It's going to be more protected from the sun. So the fruit's not going to wilt. Um, And it's just, we are not called to be spread far out. Also, I like to think of the fruit in terms of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And I was just talking to the Lord about it and I was like, God, it's really hard for me to actually produce those fruits in my life if I'm doing life at a distance from my fellow believers. Because I can't actually love Isaac in the back there if I, if I never see him. I can have this like cool idea of loving him, but I don't actually get to let the fruit come out of loving him. We cannot do it at a distance. We have to be close. We have to be closely knit. And the last P is that spiritual family gives us the promise of his presence. Matthew 18 verse 19 says, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. John, a little while back, was talking about the secret place. That's one place that we can find God. But I also want to just pose the idea that God is going to be with us when we meet together. So if you're looking for God, don't do it on your own. Do it in a group, unless if you're doing it in the secret place. And then you want to do it on your own. Hallelujah. All right, so let me take a sip of water real quick, guys. I'm actually like blasting through this. Praise the Lord. All right, so we had the creation of family. We had the fall of family. We had the redemption of family. We had the blessings of being in a spiritual family. And we're going to move on to the reality of being in a spiritual family. We just talked about how the blessings are clear and it's, it's awesome to live life inside of a family, right? If that's, all, if that's all I said to you, you'd be like, yeah, let's sign up for this thing. But guess what, guys? It's hard. It sounds easy, but when you actually sign up for it, all of a sudden, everything wrong happens, it seems like. Really not fun. Even in in light of the new covenant, covenant, we're called to live as a spiritual family, having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble humble mind. But sins here, guys, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're all going to have bad days. We're all going to have misunderstandings. We're all going to have lies from the enemy in our life. And when those lies start to manifest in us, our brother starts to see it, our sister starts to see it, we start rubbing off on them. It gets really messy like really, really messy. So I just want to take a look real quick at what family looks like according to the flesh and what, what, what it just looks like in the world. And that this might be stuff that you've experienced in your own family or in your own spiritual family. And I just want you to take a minute to sort of let that come, come to the surface because we're actually going to talk about um, the Lord redeeming it a little bit. So you might have experienced abuse where people took you for granted, where people cursed, cursed at you, where people maybe physically abused you. And that is a perversion of the enemy. 
It just is. Some of us might have grown up with absent parents in the room or without the presence of a parent at all, without father figure or mother figure. Some of us might be from divorced families where all of a sudden, you know, we're called to unity, like uh, the scripture just said a second ago, but we actually have no idea how, how unity is supposed to look because we grew up in a family where we did not have any unity. All we saw was dissension and lies and, and pain. In my own life, I've experienced hatred, offense, comparison to siblings and expectations from family. And all of these things in the natural, they began to inform our relationship with our spiritual family and our relationship with our heavenly father. In, in ways that we, you know, we can't necessarily say, you know, put, put the finger on it, but we still deeply feel that. So if you have an absent father, how can you say of God, he's a good, good father when you don't even know what a father's like? If God's, or if, if your earthly father was absent, we have no idea what a, what a heavenly father can look like, what a spiritual father can look like. And so of the flesh, family is really painful. And guess what? In the spirit, it's, it's similar. I'm fallen. We're all fallen in here. We're going to make mistakes. It's going to be painful. I just want to take a moment. Um, actually, I want to say one thing. Uh, it's a tool of the enemy that, uh, that the enemy uses to prevent us from entering into what God has called very good. It's not good for man to be alone. It's only good for man to be with others. So I just want to share my personal story with you guys. Um, a few of you guys might've heard it before. Um, but when the Lord was calling me, he really took me from a place of hating family to actually embracing family. And it was the most healing thing that I've ever experienced in my life. So I grew up in a Christian household. My sister's over there. She drove me nuts when I was real young. Um, and my parents are, are strong believers, but I, well, so I, I, I grew up believing, going to church, having an idea that God is good. All this stuff happens. But when I was 12, I had something really traumatic happen to me. I, I had a man from our community violate me. He raped me. And uh, it instantly shattered all of my ideas of what the family unit looked like because my parents didn't protect me. My, my spiritual leaders weren't there for me. Someone that I trusted in the natural that I considered to be part of my family had deeply, deeply violated me. And all of a sudden I went from, you know, having this picture perfect life to questioning everything. And so my parents, they found out some degree of what happened and they approached me and they said, Peter, this isn't right. Don't do it again. Or don't, don't let it happen again. It's, it's not cool. There's, you know, it's not good to have homosexual feelings. They, they didn't have the whole story. And so I felt like my parents had abandoned me, that they, that they actually weren't fighting to protect me. And so from that place of, of miscommunication, from that place of me not having my parents stand up for me, I began to believe in my heart that God actually wasn't a good father, that he wasn't there to fight for me. 
I started to believe that my whole family hated me. Um, so over the next couple of years, I began having thoughts of, of sin. I start getting further and further from the correct path of following God to ultimately in college saying, I don't really believe in God. This is not like God was never there for me. My family, they don't know me. I shut myself off from my family. So I hadn't had a real conversation with my parents in a decade. And all along the way, I'm actually just broken and I'm hurting and I'm saying, I'm not willing to be vulnerable. It's not good for me to be with others, especially not spiritual family because screw them. They've hurt me, especially not my physical family. They've hurt me. I can't trust them. So in college, I decide to take a, a major that is going to set me up to get as far away from my family as possible. I went to UGA, I got my degree in international affairs. I minored in Mandarin Chinese and I moved to China. I was there for four months. I got a job while I was over there and I had to come back to the States to, um, to get my visa renewed. And while I was in the States, guess who I had to stay with? My family. And I had to move back in with my parents for the first time in like four or five years. And it was the most frustrating thing I'd ever experienced because I didn't like my mom and my dad. I sort of liked my sister, but her kids drove me crazy. And so I literally, the only place I was broke because I hadn't had a job in a couple months and traveling all over the world gets expensive. And so I'm broke living with my parents. And the only place I can go to study and to continue progressing in life is a room that I know is open 24 seven, the prayer room. So I go into the prayer room and I'm studying Chinese. I'm preparing to go back to China, waiting on my visa to, to happen. And God decides to meet me in the prayer room. And he says, Peter, I want you to either be in my family or be out. I want you all the way or I don't want a, a single part of you. And in that moment, all of a sudden, the God that I had said didn't exist suddenly really existed. Really existed. And it, it was it was difficult. But I started to say, okay, God, this is it. You're real. I can't say no to you if you're speaking to me so clearly, if I feel your presence for the first time. And honestly, when you haven't felt God's presence or you haven't felt any spiritual family in, you know, however long, you forget that it's even there. And so I say yes to Jesus, but I'm still going to China because spiritual family is too difficult. It's too painful. I'm not, I'm not willing to say yes. Heck, I'm not even willing to say yes to my natural family. But God, my friends, he says, Peter, I know you don't like that college ministry that, that is at IHOP at the time or Gate City at the time. I don't know what it was called. Newbridge, that's what it was called. <laughs> he said, Peter, I know you don't like him. That Casey guy, he drives, yeah, he's just weird. He's threatening. And uh, which is not Casey, but when you have a hardened heart, guys, Casey, he comes up and he wants a hug from you. And you're like, mm -mm, I don't want to touch you. You're scary. Um, and my heart was so hard, guys, that the Lord in his kindness, he told me, go serve at, at the ministry that you actually disagree with the leaders on, that you actually don't like the majority of the members. And so I got an opportunity to start serving and setting up chairs at, uh, what, what was it called? Forerunner, thank you. I'm struggling over here with all the names. And it was actually a, a strategy from the Lord to actually 
change my heart's posture towards family. Because guess what? When you start serving family, when you start serving people, all of a sudden you're worshiping the Lord and you're doing something under the Lord. You're lifting your brother up higher because heck, probably most of us don't want to set up chairs. But in me doing that, I was saying, you know what? I'm doing the lowest job. And the Lord started changing my heart to where I started looking at people in the room when they would show up and I would be like, oh, they're not so bad. These people, they might actually, they might actually love God. Huh. And it just continued to get better and better. I started seeing the light of the love of Jesus on people's faces. And it was crazy. I was like, okay, this is weird, but let's do it, God. And so God just used that to actually change my heart posture towards family from a place of fear and pain. And there was still that there, but over the course of time, me serving and loving others actually changed my direction of life from saying, I'm not willing to love these people. I'm not willing to, to get to know them to saying, okay, God, if you like these people, if you've invited them into your family there, I have something in common with them. I can unite with them in the fact that we love Jesus, even though we are so different, even though they're not perfect, God, I realize I'm not perfect. Then in February of 20, uh, 2019, God says, okay, Peter, I'm going to let you make a choice. You either get to go back to China. If you go back to China, I will honor you. If you stay in the United States, you're going to honor me. But if you go to China, Peter, you're still going to have to come back to America and deal with all of your family issues. I couldn't run away. That was my desire all of my life. And God said, Peter, you can't run away. It's going, you're going to have to deal with it at some point. And so by the grace of God, I said, okay, God, I'm going to shut the door to China and I'm going to just jump right in. I'm going to say yes to family. And so the hardest conversation I ever had to have was with my parents when I, I came to them Right after the Lord had said, Peter, stay in China. Peter, me, I had to show up to my parents and say, mom and dad, I'm weak and I'm broken. Mom and dad, I'm hurt. Mom and dad, I've, I've lied, I've cheated. I've stolen from you. And I'm sorry. And what the Lord did in that moment was he actually brought clarity. My parents, instead of turning me away, they embraced me. They said, Peter, we're so glad to have you in this family. We're so proud of you. I started explaining to them how it all started, how I had shut off my heart because I had been raped. And they had no idea the extent of what happened. And so the enemy used one miscommunication to actually change the trajectory of my life. But by the grace of God, he came and he transformed my heart so that I could actually come and love my family that I had felt I could never be reunited with. And it's the Malachi 4, 6 thing. He's coming to reunite the heart of the father to the children and the children to the father. Not only was he reuniting my heart with God, but he was reuniting my heart with my earthly father, with my earthly mother. And it changed everything. All of a sudden I would come to church and I, I didn't live out of a place of fear anymore. I didn't live out of a place of shame and condemnation because I knew that my mom and my dad, not only my earthly mother and my earthly father, but also, also my heavenly father wasn't there to get me. 
He wasn't there to condemn me, but he was actually there to just embrace me as I am. He was there to protect me. That's who our father is. What I found in my life is that God changes hearts towards him first and then comes and fixes the natural. Changes the spiritual dynamics first and then comes and fixes my family. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. So I have a couple things. Oh, and by the way, uh, I love Casey and I love Jamie now. I, I had a meeting over steak with them a couple years ago and I like bawled my eyes out over steak repenting to them. So that's another little part of my story. Praise the Lord for Brazilian steakhouses and uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. <sighs> Jamie was so confused. He was like, dude, we're just eating steak right now. Why are you crying? <laughs> so um, I just want to, coming out of that testimony, I want to give you guys a couple points. I've got just a few minutes left, so stick with me. A couple points that uh, the, I feel like the Lord has um, given me over the past few years on pitfalls of approaching family, of what we have to avoid. So the first one is expectation. It's really easy to read a bunch of books, to watch movies about these picture-perfect families, these Disney families that are awesome. And I think that that's, that actually detracts from our uh, ability to embrace the family that we've been given. The Lord made it really clear to me, Peter, you cannot expect anything expect, except to meet me. The whole reason you're here, Peter, is me. And so the only expectation, therefore, should be that you meet me. That's it. I think I've seen among fellow believers, and there's no condemnation here. I've done it in my own life. But I've seen these high expectations that when they're not met, it creates offense. This expectation to have an awesome worship team, an expectation to have an awesome discipleship program, an awesome missions trip organization. And when those things fall apart or they just don't happen, we get offended. We can only put our expectations in the one who has brought us hope. And that's Jesus. So avoid expectation. He is our only expectation. The second temptation is comparison. That's a hard one. It's really easy to say, man, my brother, my sister, they have this or they don't have this and I'm better than them or they're better than me. And I did that a lot. And I still do that, guys. I'm not perfect. But the Lord, early on in my uh, relationship with him, he said, Peter, you, you got to stop comparing yourself. You're not David. You're not John. You're not every other person in this room. Matthew, sorry, 1 John 3, 12 says, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was comparing his, himself to his brother. And it birthed offense in his heart that ultimately manifested itself as murder. So we cannot give in to the temptation of comparison at all costs. Thirdly, we must be careful when judging brothers or sisters. 
Oftentimes it comes out of a place of having unmet expectations and comparison. And the Bible makes it really clear that we cannot be judging our brothers and our sisters. Or we, if we do judge, we have to be extremely careful about it. Jesus says, before you judge a brother, take the plank out of your own eye because your issue is way bigger than your brother's and, and he just has a little speck in his eye. And so I just want to caution us as a spiritual family, don't go judging a brother or sister. Don't go um, judging another ministry because it's ultimately probably a heart change here that the Lord wants to do for you as opposed to something that he wants to, to happen in their life. He can fix them, but he wants to fix your heart first. And lastly, we must avoid offense by all means. Offense is the most dangerous of all of the pitfalls that I've mentioned, in my opinion, because I think offense over time gnaws away at us. And it actually takes what, what could be a great relationship and it, it keeps pushing us further and further away from a brother or a sister or a ministry or from God. There's going to be a day when there, when there is great offense in the church. Jesus talks about it and that's going to be a falling away. And so I do not want any ounce of my being to be offended with a brother, to be offended with a sister. And these are all hard things to say, guys. They're hard things to live by because we're not perfect. But we have a family, we have a fellowship that is actually there to fight for us, that's actually there to stand with us when hardship happens. And so we have to embrace it for the sake of Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.